Father, how grateful we are that we can call you Father. You're the creator, and no one would, would exist without you. But we also know that there are two fathers, spiritually speaking. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. There is, uh, there is a kingdom of darkness, and the scriptures tell us that when we are born, we're born physically alive. It's always exciting to see a little baby boy, a little baby girl. But every little baby is born physically alive but spiritually dead. And we're born into that kingdom of darkness. But we are thankful for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ, who was and is God, came to this earth, was born of a virgin, took on human flesh, became the God-man, lived a sinless life, took our sins upon him, all of our sins, took all of our sin upon him. He who knew no sin became sin. And he went to the cross, and he sacrificed his life. He shed his blood. His body was broken for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. We thank you for what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And we thank you that because of what he did, and when we heard the gospel and your spirit tugged on our heart and pulled us to you and we called upon the Lord Jesus and we turned from our sin, ask him to forgive us of our sin, that at that moment we were regenerated and um, we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. Because of Christ, we know you, Heavenly Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the only way. It's, it's just simply your grace that we have come. So your desire was for us to be physically born, and then at a certain point, we are to be spiritually born. And when we're spiritually born, it's all brand new stuff. But you've given us a book that's going to take us from immaturity to maturity. You want to use this. Every guy in this room, you've got a purpose for him. Every single one without exception. You've got, you've got a task. You've got a plan. Our times are in your hand. You will make known to me the path of life. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You have something in mind for each man. And you equip us through your word. We don't get it all overnight. It's slow growth. But as we stay teachable and stay in your word, we grow through the ups and downs of life. So give us teachable hearts tonight as we study your word. Thank you for your wisdom. Thanks for forgiveness. Thanks for taking away our sin. 
Thanks for giving us hope and a purpose and a future. It may not all be clear to us. It's clear to you. So we're going to stay close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last semester, we spent pretty much the whole semester talking about being fathers and grandfathers and how critical that is in the days in which we're living. Um, I want to continue that. Because the days in which we are living, we're, we're really watching the, fragment, the fragmentation uh, of a nation, of a culture. You've heard of the rise and fall of great nations. We're not rising, we're falling. We're, uh, and, and, if, and if you read history, you read Toynbee's work on the rise and fall of great nations, uh, they always collapse from, from within. They become hollow. Uh, you know this. And we're watching it, and you say, well, gee, what's the timeline? How much time do we have? I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows? God could intervene. We don't know. But here's what we know. We're alive. We're at our post. Uh, we have our sphere of influence as men. Every guy in here has a sphere of influence. It's, uh, it's the people in your life. Uh, it's your actual, it's your, it's, it would be even your geographical boundaries. It's where you live. It's where you go to work. Uh, it's, uh, it's your family. It's your friends. It, uh, you, you, you got a you geographical area where most of the mileage on your car it's in, it's in those boundaries. That's your sphere of influence. And God's placed you there. And he's appointed you to be there. And down the road, you might move or you might make a change or this or this. But for now, that's where you are. Uh, as Adam was in the garden, you're in your sphere. And you've got people as he had people. And you've got responsibilities as he had people. That responsibilities. Many of you are fathers, many of you are grandfathers, but you may not be. You may be, I see some young guys, you may not be a father. Uh, more than likely, um, you will wind up getting married. You, and if you're living with her, marry her. Just thought I'd throw that in. Don't live with her, marry her. And have kids. That's how it works. That's what God ordained. And it's in the early parts of Genesis. Went over this a few weeks ago and I was speaking for Chuck. Uh, God ordained gender, male and female. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created, uh, he created the marriage for this cause of man shall leave his father and mother. What is that over there? Genesis, is it two? Right at the end. 
maybe 23. This cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Go back to Genesis 1. He told that couple, be fruitful and multiply. That means have kids. So that's pretty much what life is. And you go to work, and you do the same thing, and you show up at the same job, and you come home, and you're tired, and you watch something, and you go to sleep, and you get back, and uh, you, you, you just keep doing it. And a lot of young guys look at that and say, man, that's, that's really boring. That's called being faithful. That's how the world moves. That's how the world revolves. That's how things happen. And in the course of that, every day is significant. may not look significant, but every day is significant. Uh, if you're not a father, more than likely, more than likely, for most guys, one day you will be. You'll be a husband. One day you'll be a grandfather, and you can't believe it that you're that old and that you fall down steps, but it's just part of life. <laughs> just consider it gymnastics, you know. Uh, it's just how life works. I want to keep talking about fathering because, as Psalm 11:3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We're watching foundations. How many times have I said this in here? We're watching foundations being bulldozed, bulldozed, bulldozed. What do we do? We get frustrated. Well, you just keep showing up and being a man of God. You keep being faithful. You keep following Christ. You keep loving your wife. You keep confessing your sin. You keep in your Bible. You ask the Lord to help you apply the Bible to your life, and you just keep showing up and doing the next right thing. That's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be a Christian man. That's what it means to be a Christian father and a Christian husband. It's critical. It's the most important work in the world. I did, I did a book back in 98 called Anchorman. First one I ever did was Point Man. That was in 90. But in 98, I did a book called Anchorman. I've never thought of it in here. And I really had mixed feelings about doing this, but I really want to do it. Anchorman, the stuff in Anchorman is different than the stuff in Point Man. But, but I think we're at such a critical time that I want to keep rolling on the responsibility of being a father, the responsibility of being a grandfather. I called it Anchor Man because uh, I really believe in Scripture that there is a responsibility upon a man who is a father, catch this, to anchor his family in Christ for the next hundred years. Uh, and you say, where the heck did you get that? I'll show it to you in a minute. But I want to begin. I, I want to begin, I, I came with something I came across early this morning. And it just sets me up. Um, I read this early this morning, and as I read it, nine pages long, I thought, there you go. A uh, website called Mirror Orthodoxy. Um, from best I can tell, uh, a young man in his 30s, he's in ministry, his name is Joseph Minich. And uh, he, he's talking about, 
He's talking about the whole debate among Christians about the culture coming down, and so, you know, the educational system and uh, what's being done in public education and all this, and this debate among Christians. You know, what do we do with our kids? What do we, I've had this conversation with my, my kids about their little kids that are getting ready to go to school. So if you have kids, it's a point of concern because of the power of education and what's being taught. He's talking about this. He says, as the nation's schools continue to move down the path, pave for, for them in the Obergefell decision, which was the same-sex marriage decision of the Supreme Court, many Christian parents are pulling their children out of the public schools. That's how he starts. Um, and just talking about how different Christians are doing different things and not sure what to do. That's how he starts. Um, and then as a result of all these changes on the Supreme Court and all this, we're all thinking, man, things have really changed. He goes on and says, the more fundamental point, however, to be made is that not simply that things, things have not changed as much as we think they have changed. Uh, what he's saying is, what we're seeing being mandated by courts has been in the culture for a long time. It's been around. They're just reflecting what's in the culture. Uh, I can't take too much time on this, but it's good. So he's talking about all these legal battles and educational battles. Then he says this, the real battle is a battle that you cannot avoid in which you swim around in 24-7, and it's a battle in which the whole order of reality is a reality which says that you and your desires are the most important thing. We've talked about this. See, in our culture, a couple weeks ago, here, I talked about the Bible being the supreme authority. Because in our culture, what's happened is every individual speaking generally. In our culture, everybody's their own supreme authority. As David Wells says, in our culture anymore, there is no truth, capital T, no longer. There is no capital T truth. There are only truths, plural. And my truth is as important as your truth. And we've reached a point, to quote Wells again, where we are so into ourselves and our own reality and we set our own truth that my subjective view of truth can trump an objective fact. That's where we are. Uh, so this guy is saying when you talk about education and the whole thing, you got to take a step back and understand that this is in the culture. He goes on and says, it really is cultural error. It's in the air. We breathe it constantly, and most of us don't even realize that we're breathing it or could identify it. Okay. And then he says this. This is what caught my attention. This guy is about the age of my kids. My oldest is 38 down to 33. Uh, Rachel, John, and Josh. He says this. If I may be permitted a personal aside, I grew up in the Dallas area in the 90s. Well, so did my kids. I was homeschooled, and I had culture wars and worldviews up to my eyeballs. Well, my kids had that. They went to Colorado, Summit, got worldview, Christian view, focus on the family, all that stuff, okay? I wonder if my kids know this guy. I don't know. Uh, he said, so did all my friends. They had the same evangelical upbringing. I noticed something by the time we all went off to college. 
a ton of them lost their faith. I noticed something else. Plenty of my public school acquaintances did not, obviously, who were Christians. Indeed, I doubt that the percentage was significantly different. Now, that's interesting. And then he goes on and talks about uh, the whole concept of worldview and how we taught kids worldview, which wasn't bad. He said, did worldview fail us all? He says, not necessarily. Rather, worldview education prepared us to fight half a battle. Uh, and we barely noticed a battle that was going on the whole time. And that was the battle that was in the culture, that was in the air, that kids, even in evangelical Christian homes, picked up in their own hearts that they are really the authority on what is true and what it isn't. Um, he says, we can't escape it. It's all around us. It is us. And even worse, most of its instances are not obviously evil or to be found in objects which are overtly idols. Um, he goes on and says, I can hardly name a Christian below the age of 35 who has not struggled with the doctrine of hell, with why homosexuality is wrong, with questions concerning the Bible's teaching on women. Now, on the homosexuality thing, I talk to guys constantly who have raised their kids in evangelical churches, all this, and they are stunned and shocked when their kids say, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy that it's wrong. Um, I mean, constantly, uh, I'm, I'm talking with guys who are having these conversations. Um, then he goes on and says this. This is, this is good for all of us. Because, you know, we all tend to kind of like to be our own authorities, don't we? You see something in the Bible you don't like, eh, you know, I'm not buying that. It's either the Word of God or it isn't. Jesus said it was. He said every jot and tittle he fulfilled. Every, I, I saw Mary and I watched the documentary this week. It's fabulous. You, you want to spend two good hours watching something really good on Netflix? Uh, is Genesis history. I mean, it's dynamite. Is Genesis history? Del Tackett. Uh, I met Del. Great guy. Uh, used to be at Focus on the Family. He's uh, head of the Truth Project. It's, it, uh, you'll be shocked. It's all about Genesis. It's all about creation. And the first five minutes are stunning. Stunning. He will stun you and shock you. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Yeah. We have guys walking out right now to go watch that, actually. <laughs> Good for you. He goes on and says, what we really need to do, because we tend to be our own authority and we tend to want to be our own truth, he says, we're called by the gospel of the risen Christ. And... When we come to him, we're caught up in a narrative which is so much greater than ourselves and our little stories. You see, there is a God. There is truth. He made us. He gave us his word. He can be trusted. Do we understand everything about him? No. My ways are not your ways. Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. But you see, until we get out from under ourselves, our authority, and get to him, we really don't know why we exist. And then he goes on and 
He talks about spiritual formation in the life of the home. Okay? He says this. This battle that's going on culturally, the under-shepherds in this battle are parents and particularly fathers. As I observe my friends and my own family, I can tell you what made an almost-to-the-person difference. There are always exceptions whether or not the parents lived in the joy of the gospel, had an identity outside of themselves, and loved their neighbors. He's talking about those who were raised in Christian homes. He said, no amount of public school schooling has ever competed with a gospel-centered home. And no amount of home or private schooling has ever made up for the lack of one. He's dead right. The most powerful force, I think, on the earth is a husband and wife who are in Christ, who are under the authority of Scripture, who are forgiving one another, loving each other, living in obedience to Christ and his word. That's what he's saying. And what is a church? A church is comprised of individuals and a church is comprised of families. Uh, he says, we're at a crossroads in our culture. There is no room for lack of agency on the part of parents. Not being conscious, conscious and active will not be supplemented by a cultural background that makes up for your slack. Not anymore. In other words, you, can't, you, you can't put this off on a school, Christian school or home school. You can't put it off anybody. It's on us, particularly fathers. And here I must speak to myself before all others. Men must leave their homes. Men must lead their homes in God's word and in his gospel. Men must love their wives and love them well. Men must be dignified and invest in their children. Men must lit liturgize their children. What he means is teach them Scripture. Um, that is predominantly not just monitoring TV shows, although you should. That's fine, of course, but if they don't get it there, they'll get it in all the places you don't see. In other words, the stuff you don't want your kids to see on TV, they're going to get everywhere else. It is not about taking out what cannot be taken out of the air. Once again, the stuff they're getting is everywhere. They breathe it in. It is about putting in what will not be there apart from your discipline, ownership, and agency and involvement as a father, as a grandpa. This is about husbandry. I've talked about husbandry in here. I've talked about animal husbandry. I've, about, I've talked about... Crop husbandry, I've, talking, I've talked about land husbandry. Husbandry, animal husbandry, is the breeding and care of animals. Crop husbandry is the rotation of the crops, fertilizing, nurturing. That's taking care. Land, there's land management. Uh, you read Louis L'Amour in the Old West. He did one, one great story about drought in Arizona, and there's one guy that all the other ranchers hated because he had green grass, and they, they're going to kill him. They hated his guts, and they wanted his water. Well, what did, he do? what, did he, what, what did he do that they didn't do? He didn't overgraze. He went out there and busted his tail and made spreader dams to spread that moisture when it came. He, he took care of his land. To be a husband is to take care, to take care. You take care of your wife as Christ loved the church. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the discipline 
and nourishment of the Lord, admonition of the Lord. It's taking care, you see? Not ignoring, taking care. He's saying this is about husbandry. There's some good stuff in here. But you know what? Let me just get to the last paragraph. This was good. He's talking about all the culture stuff, all this, the music, the TV shows, this and this. I like this. He said, your kids may know all the Katy Perry songs, and their favorite food might be Pop-Tarts. But if they have parents that love the gospel of Christ, if they see parents who forgive one another, see a father who is humble before the Lord and moved by his words, if they hear their father speak with conviction to them about God and his gravity, whose parents sing and pray, who love their neighbors, who care for the orphan and the widow, and whose lives and selves are rooted in Christ and lived out in their neighbor, overlooked weeds will not choke the mighty oak of such a legacy. That's a good word. That's a real good word. Uh, what he's saying is, all the stuff our kids are going to encounter, fathers and grandfathers in Christian homes are the very best place. Listen, when Christ is loved and Christ is honored in public and in private, when it's not, when it's not fake, And there's a lot of fake Christianity. We're one way at church, we're another way at home. But when it's real, when it's authentic, it makes a tremendous difference. We're, we're going to look at three passages tonight. The first one is Proverbs 20, verse 7. Proverbs 20, verse 7. Because Proverbs 20, verse 7 keys off on what he just said. Talking about the importance of fathers, the importance of Christian homes, Christian marriages. Nobody's perfect, but where there's authenticity, where there's a genuine love of Christ and a love for the Word. In, in, in Proverbs 20, verse 7, it says, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Now, that whole article is summed up in Proverbs 20, verse 7. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons, obviously daughters, if he has them, after him. When the pieces add up, integrity, this is why I said it has to be public and it has to be private. Because when it's just public and not private, what it does is it confuses. It screws kids up. Um, but when it's public and when it's private, I, I remember I, I was home for a while from college and my dad had said something to my mom, and he really hurt her. And I came in one couple days later, and my mom wasn't, she, she was, this rarely happened. But I caught her, and she was crying. I said, what, what's, what's going on, mom? 
And she didn't want to tell me. She just didn't, she didn't want to, but I got her to tell me it was what my dad has said. And uh, I'd always watch my dad. Uh, something had to be dealt with. He always would deal with it. So I thought, well, okay. So I just, you know, a few days later, I said, hey, Dad. And we were, there were just two of us. I said, hey, you know, I need to mention something to you. He said, sure. I said, you know, the other night, da, 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 when you, I said, that really hurt Mom. He said, really? I said, yeah, I actually, yeah, I, I, she was crying and didn't want to tell me, but that was it. And I said, you know, Dad, that wasn't right. Now, you know what a lot of guys would have said? You can't talk to me like that. I'm your father. Who do you think you are? He didn't say that. I said, Dad, that's not right. And he said, well, it sure isn't. He said, I appreciate your telling me, Steve. I'll get it right. Now, I, I love my dad for that. And see, that's authentic. My dad, I told you this, my dad, get, first thing, in the morning gets his coffee, he's up with his Bible every morning. I mean, he didn't miss. We were always at church. I mean, we were always at church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night, if they were washing dishes in the kitchen, we were there. I mean, we were just always there. That was our life. But see, it was lived out, not that there was perfection, but it was lived out at home. Perfectly all the time? No. But we could talk about stuff, and we asked for forgiveness. I thank God for that. That's what we're talking about. See, that's integrity. Because, see, the pe- we, we, we are not expected as fathers, as grandfathers, we're not expected to be perfect. I think we, there should be an expectation that we're honest, that we're real, that we're genuine, that when we sin, we confess, that we, we clean up our misses. You see? And there's an accountability in the Christian home. There's an account, there should be an accountability to your wife. There should be accountability to your kids. I'm sure I told this story here sometime, but I don't remember when. But we're on a road trip from Texas to California. My kids had to be like 12, 9, 6, something like that, ballpark. We were late getting out of Dallas, got everybody in the Suburban, we stopped in Big Spring, Texas. We were supposed to be there at 7. We got there at 2. We, uh, we had a room at the Roach Trap Inn. <laughs> and the air, it was July. The air wasn't where It was miserable. We're in there. Nobody can sleep. Get up the next morning. We got to get up early, get back on schedule so we can get to California in time. And uh, everybody's in the shower. I'm the last guy in the shower. It's okay. You're the dad. That's how it works. I finally get in the shower. Uh, I had a cast because I let John drive the golf court, and he ran off in, into a, uh, an abutment and broke my wrist. And uh, 
So I, I had a thing over it, and I'm in the shower, and I reached up to change the shower head, and there was a jagged head that cut, cut my finger to the bone, and it's cold water coming out. And I threw that soap, and I said, damn it, just like that. Anyway, uh, uh, I heard that from Chuck. Um, <laughs> and I, I just said it. Uh, you know, so I'm trying to get out of the shower, stitched it up with some dental floss. I don't know what I did. I'm just bleeding everywhere. I get, you know, toweled up, and I walk out, and there's Mary, Rachel, John, and Josh all sitting on the bed staring at me. <laughs> Just looking at me. And nobody's saying anything. And I knew what it was. And finally, John, nine, ten, after a while, he said, Daddy, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. He said, what would happen to me if I said that word? I said, you don't want to find out. <laughs> he said, I know, Dad. So how come you can say it? And I can't. I wanted to tell him to go to his room, but we were. <laughs> no, you see, that was pretty critical, how you handle that one. See, that's what you call a teachable moment. Just sit down, and I said, well, John, that makes no sense that you can't say it, but I can't. And I don't normally say that word, but I did. And I was wrong. And I need to ask all of you to forgive me. And see, I learned that from my dad. That's, they don't expect perfection. Integrity is when all of, integrity is when there's congruency, when the pieces add up. You see? So when a man, a righteous man, when he walks in integrity, when the pieces add up, not that he's perfect, but when he sins, he'll confess, and he, they make it, you make it right. You make your stuff right in your home. What, what that does is, then your sons are blessed after you because they see the real thing. And there can be all these lies and all this stuff they get in school and this and this and this, but they can't deny. They may get away from it for a while. They may go over here. They may go over here. But as the years go by, they cannot deny the reality of Christ in the life of a father, in the life of a mother, in the life of a family. It's undeniable, you see. It's real. It's, there's a world of darkness, and then they come home, and there's the light of Christ. And we're imperfect. You get this. Here's where we're going tonight. We're going to observe three things tonight. The first one is this. We're going to observe the spiritually drifting family. The spiritually drifting family. Secondly, we're going to observe the spiritually anchored family. Thirdly, we're going to observe the principle of spiritual compound interest. I'll come back to those. 
The first one that I want to look at tonight is the spiritually drifting family. Um, So let's talk about Dennis Rodman and Howard Stern. I'm going to quote from this Anchorman book that I did 20 years ago. Now, we all know Dennis Rodman. He's the uh, ambassador of the United States to North Korea. (laughs) We know uh, Howard Stern. He's still on the radio, but you got to pay to listen to him. Um, They're still around. 20 years ago, I mean, they were big-time cultural icons. I did a little research on those guys because they were both famous, rich, um, profane, rebellious, rude. Did some research on Rodman. Uh, when he was five years old, his father left. Never saw his father again. Hadn't seen his father in 1998. Hadn't seen his father for 30 years. Uh, is Newsweek still around? There used to be a magazine called Newsweek. A reporter tracked down his father in the Philippines living with his two wives and 15 children. He'd fathered a total of 27 children. And he told the reporter from Newsweek, my goal is 30. That's tragic. Wants 30 kids, has a son he hasn't seen in 30 years. That kind of explains Dennis Rodman. Howard Stern. Howard Stern gave an interview to Rolling Stone magazine and kind of let his guard down. It's kind of shocking. I read the whole thing. Um, I won't quote it, I'll just say what he said. He said, I've never had a lot of self-esteem. I honestly don't feel good about myself. I never have. Because um, my whole life, my dad had a nickname for me, and it was an expletive. He didn't call me by his name, by my name. He called me this name. Uh, The biblical term would be uh, dung. But it wasn't dung. You're just a piece of... You're just a... his whole life. And he said, that still rings in my ears. I hear that all day long, every day of my life. That kind of explains Howard Stern. Uh, see, neither one of these men had a righteous father who walked in his integrity. What, what Howard Stern and Dennis Rodman had... Uh, See, they had a lot, a lot of money, a lot of fame, but they're not blessed men. They're not blessed. They just got stuff. Um, it's because they come from drifting families. Families that are just adrift. So what's a drifting family? A drifting family is a family without an anchor. The father, biblically, is to be the anchor of the family. Is it not true that anchors are important? That's why they put them on ships. Uh, When I was seven, uh, we went down to see my uncle and aunt in San Diego, and my uncle somehow knew somebody, and we wound up taking a day trip on, at that time, one of the biggest aircraft carriers in the world, which was the USS Shangri-La. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget they had escalators on that thing. But when I wrote this and was researching this, that was one of the smaller carriers. The newest big one was the USS Dwight Eisenhower. A couple stats. 
uh, from, from Kiel to Mass, the Eisenhower is uh, the size of a 22-story building. Flight deck comprises four and a half acres, weighs 95,000 tons, carries 6,000 sailors. There's not just one anchor, there's two. Each of the anchors weigh 60,000 pounds. Did you get that? Each anchor weighs 60,000 pounds. Each anchor is attached to a chain that weighs 665,000 pounds and stretches to a full length of 1,082 feet. Just one solitary link in that chain, one link weighs 365 pounds. You ever decided you're gonna read through the Bible in a year and you get up early, get up an hour early and you get your coffee and it's 5 a.m. and uh, you look at your Bible reading guide and you start reading and it's such and such begat and he begat and he begat and you got 14 pages of genealogies. You ever done that? And you think, gosh, this is boring. You know, genealogies actually aren't boring, but reading somebody else's genealogy is. <laughs> Ancestry, you get on Ancestry.com, that's fascinating. That's your genealogy. Every guy in this room has a genealogy. You know what a genealogy is? It's just a long chain. That's a genealogy. Every baseball game in the world starts with the same thing. The two managers go out, meet the umpires, and they hand them a card. What's on the card? The lineup. This is the lineup. Here's the starting lineup. Uh, every genealogy in the Bible is a lineup card of fathers. That's what it is. And they're important. But you see, you have a family genealogy, and it goes through the father. Um, you and your family, you and your wife, your kids, right, are one link in a very long chain. And that chain stretches all the way back. I said this the other day. If you go to, yeah, I think it's Genesis 8, when, Ad, when uh, Noah got out of the ark, which really didn't exist, <laughs> when he got out of the ark, which did exist, and when he landed, he got out with his wife and his three boys and their wives. There were eight people alive on the face of the earth. And if Ancestry.com went back far enough, everybody in this room could trace yourself back to either Ham, Shem, or Japheth, his three boys. All the races were in those three boys. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. That's why it's kind of foolish to, to be racially prejudiced. You're related to them. We're all family. We all came from those three. That'd be quite a reunion. And that's how it works. That's Bible stuff. Takes care of that nonsense. This, this family chain is so long, it's kind of hard to grasp the enormity of it. And we're, we, we do well if we can just get two or three links in our family chain. You know. You remember your grandpa? I remember both grandpas but I didn't know the ones before. I've seen pictures, but I didn't know. Uh, let's go to Deuteronomy 6. 
Because in Deuteronomy 6, we're going to find how it is that we have our second point, which is the spiritually anchored family. So our first one was the spiritually drifting family. The spiritually drifting family is a family that's drifting because the father who should be anchoring the family, he's drifting. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know his purpose. He's not rightly related to the creator. So then that, that affects the wife. It affects the kids. It's passed on from generation to generation. When we talk next about the spiritually anchored family, well, that's where Deuteronomy 6 is so critical. So you've probably already gotten there and you've beaten me to it, but Deuteronomy 6, the context is they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're, gonna, they're, they're now after 40 years. They wandered for 40 years because of the unbelief of the 10 spies. When they checked out the land, they came out of Egypt. They should have gone right in there in a matter of weeks. Moses got 12 guys, I think it's Numbers 12, get 12 men from each tribe, each one a leader among them, send them out on a reconnaissance mission. It was Joshua and it was Caleb and 10 other guys who looked like leaders but who were counterfeit leaders because they were public leaders, but privately they weren't worshipers. They were not men of integrity, and it came out under pressure. So they go scope out the land, they come back, they say it's a marvelous land, but there are giants in the land. So God just did 10 acts of incredible power to get you out of Egypt. He took you through the Red Sea on dry land, and there are giants in the land, and you're worried? Yeah, we can't take those guys. That's insane. Joshua and Caleb said, look, God said he'll fight for us. Look what he just did. But you see, it was all show. They, they were big hat, no cattle. They, they, they were trying to look the part, but it wasn't in their hearts. So they were wiped out, and everyone over 20 was wiped out, and then they had to wander for 40 years. So you start Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, to a new generation... By the way, the men that he's speaking to, who were 45, 46, 47, 40 years before when the 10 spies screwed up the whole nation, they weren't 45, they were 4, 5, and 6, and 7. There's always a new generation coming up. So in Deuteronomy, he's speaking to the new generation coming up. And he says, this is the, what's he say? This is the statutes, the commandments, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you were going over to possess so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be pro prolonged. Notice that he says so that you and your son and your grandson. We, we tend to think in our culture when you raise your kids uh, and, you know, they're out of the house, uh, your job's done. No, not according to Scripture. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. Why fear the Lord? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What's wrong with this nation is we have lost the fear of the Lord. Therefore, we have no wisdom. We have no common sense. We're insane. Okay. So here, you, you've got so that you and your son and your grandson. It doesn't stop when your kids leave home. 
We think it does, but see, now you got grandkids are going to show up, which is great. If you scope this out, all right, you and your son and your grandson, I said earlier, I think God wants his men. Our task is to anchor our families in Christ for 100 years. Well, where do you get 100 years? If you scope that out, you and your son and your grandson, you're obviously going to die, but your son will be alive, your grandson will be alive, more than likely. Um, then your son will die, and then his grand... You get it. When you're gone, when you're in heaven with Christ, your influence should still be anchoring your family. And if you scope that out, it's 100 years, maybe 125, maybe 150. Now, I know you got a lot on your plate. you got a lot to do. <laughs> and you're saying, yeah, and here I'm, and I'm supposed to anchor. I'm, what? 100 years? You feel any pressure from that? <sighs> well, don't. Uh, how do I anchor my family in Christ for 100 years? Well, you just follow him today. That's it. You just follow Christ today. I mean, I, I know I covered this last semester, but it's been a few months. Look at verse 5. This is for fathers and grandfathers. Uh, the first job of fathering and grandfathering is to love God deeply, not to be a fake. Watch this. You shall love the Lord your God with 90% of your heart, 70% of your soul, 60% of your mind. That's not what it says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. I knew my dad loved the Lord with all his heart. I knew it. I watched him. He had a temper. He'd get irritable. He'd get, you know, ticked off. I mean, sure. But he loved God. He loved my mom. He loved me. I knew it. I, no, I mean, there wasn't a doubt. I'll never forget in Little League, when we always played on Saturday. We had, you know, one game, practice Tuesday night. Tuesday night afterwards, coach would come on everybody and said, hey, guys, this week, uh, we're not playing Saturdays a problem, so we're going to play Sunday at 11. I knew right then I wasn't playing. I mean, not me. Because we're in church. And my dad, I told you, played a lot of ball and, you know, Loved athletics, but he loved Jesus more. I mean, I knew as soon as I heard that, I wasn't playing ball Sunday. And afterwards, my dad went up and said to the coach, hey, I'm going to start a boycott. I'm going to sue you. Uh, I'm going to do this and that. He didn't say any of that. My dad just said, hey, coach, we're not going to, sorry, we'll miss Sunday. But, oh, was there a problem? He goes, no, no, not at all. But uh, we'll be in church Sunday 11. It's what we do. Oh, yeah, sure, good, good. Oh, great. Yeah. He didn't make a big deal. He just had priorities. See? God comes first. Not baseball. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. The way you get to love God, the way you get to know God is in his word. That's why we do Bible study, okay? Verse 6, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be in your heart. So the more you, you, you get to know the Lord, the more you, you, know, you, get to, you get to know the Bible, it's on your heart, it's on your mind, okay? And then the next verse, you teach your children diligently. 
Watch this. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Obviously daughters here, if you have them. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. See, it's just part of life. You don't turn your, you don't turn your uh, home into a seminary. You just, you just live your life with your, with your wife and with your kids in your sphere of influence. And sometimes, as you go through life, and something comes up, you teach. My dad taught me by not, we're not, we're not, we're not playing Sunday at 11. We don't do that. We just don't do that. You see, there's certain things, and you watch what your father believes being lived out in how he applies it to his life. You get this, don't you? That's how it's got to be. And when you don't do it, you make it right. But what I see in, in Deuteronomy here, especially in verse 5, you shall love the your Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. When you do that, see, here's the deal. You're all in. You're all in. I'm looking at that clock. You're all in with Christ. Years ago, Bruce Wilkinson did a book called Experiencing Spiritual Breakthroughs. Subtitle is the powerful principle of the three chairs. Some of you have heard this. It's very powerful. Uh, his illustration is this. He says, imagine on a stage three chairs lined up one next to another. They are three chairs of faith. Uh, each chair represents a person's spiritual status before God. Uh, the chair on the left we'll call the first chair. Chair in the middle, the second. Chair on the right, the third. Together, we'll call them the chairs of faith. All right, first chair. The first chair believer is not only saved, but has gone beyond accepting the gift of salvation to willfully being under Christ's authority and direction. You're a disciple of Christ. You're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are growing. You are maturing. He's first in your life. You're all in with him. Um, the Bible is your constitution. Jesus is your king. Uh, he says, uh, attach the word commitment to the first chair. Okay? That's someone who's all in with Christ. That's a man, a righteous man, who walks with integrity. Okay. That's a Deuteronomy 6 man. Um... He's on a lifelong journey to spiritual maturity. All right, now the second chair represents someone who has received new life in Christ but hasn't decided how little or much they will follow him. Claims to believe all the same truths as someone in the first chair, follows the Christian lifestyle in many outward ways, usually has the best of intentions, but um, the word compromise is associated with a second chair individual. Compromise. Because you see, they're still dealing with, am I my authority? Is it my truth or is it his? Okay? Then you got a third chair. Uh, the third chair stands for someone who has not responded personally to God. A third chair person may have known 
may have always known he wasn't a Christian, may have consciously rejected God or be confused about their spiritual state, especially if he has grown up in a Christian family surrounded by God talk and churchianity. He may look, act, feel, and think like Christians, almost. But a gulf of sin and rebellion lies between him and God. Until he kneels at the cross, he is at odds with his creator and his purpose in life. Attach the word conflict to his life. He goes on and he talks about the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, what you tend to see is that you see a generation come to Christ, and then you see the second generation follow, and then you see the third generation begin to wander off. This may be what's happening in your family. But I love what Bruce says. He says, the good news, if you have someone in your family who's third generation, all they need to do is meet Jesus. And then suddenly they're in, everything changes. They just need to meet Christ personally. They just need to be saved from their sin. They just need to have an encounter with the living God of the universe and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how important it is for fathers, for grandfathers, to be all in. Uh, I, I, uh, there, there's a situation I'm close to, and I, I watch it a lot, of a man who, and I've referred to it in here before, it's, it's, it's one of the greatest tragedies I've ever seen in my life. A man who is powerful in the scriptures, is in certain ministry circles, is so well-known and well-respected. Uh, I've, p people think uh, extraordinary things about him and his walk with Christ. Uh, Matthew Henry, the great commentator of 300 years ago, someone asked for a um, character reference on a particular pastor in his area. And Matthew Henry said, uh, I'm sorry, I can't give you one. Uh, I don't know him that well. And oh, I've, well, I've heard you talk about how many times you've heard him preach his many, many messages. He goes, oh, I've heard him preach many times. But I've never been in his home. Never been in his home. You see, there's the acid test. Those who... Uh, observe this man from a distance. I mean, they just, most wonderful, godly. Talk to his kids. Recently, one of his sons said to me, it's hard to be in the presence of evil for 12 hours. And, and I would agree. I would agree. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We did works of miracles. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, Matthew 7. Uh, it's possibly so caught up in your own self-righteousness that you know all about him, but you don't know him. I'm not saying whether this man does or doesn't. I don't know. God knows. It's possible. But I will say this. 
those whom he should have cared for and loved and discipled and sacrificed and he's a train wreck. That's tragic. You guys still with me? Yes. Oh, by the way, don't be like that. <laughs> In case you missed the point, don't be like that. I, 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 I try to pray every day, let not the foot of pride come upon me. Don't let me think I'm hot stuff, because I'm not. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And what do you have that you did not receive? Whatever you have is a gift from God, so you give him thanks, and you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't let me get proud. Don't let me get arrogant. The second thing I ask for is do not let me wander from thy commandments. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. And the second is like the first, you shall love your Neighbor is yourself. Your wife is your neighbor. Your son, your daughter are your neighbor. That's Christianity. Third point that we want to observe is the principle of spiritual compound interest. The principle of spiritual compound interest. Uh, go to Psalm 78 real quickly. Psalm 78 ties in with the other verses that we've looked at. Uh, psalm 78 is a psalm that really recalls the history of the nation of Israel from Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all the way in the first Samuel. Yeah, uh, but we're not going to read the whole thing. It's really long. I just want to read some opening verses. Psalm 78, listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. Now watch this. Now watch this. And think about you and your son and your grandson, okay, anchoring the family chain. Watch this. Which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us, okay, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. So when you uh, sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you get up, when you rise up, Deuteronomy 6, uh, w when it comes up, w you tell them about the greatness of God and what he has done in your life and in the life of those who have gone before. You don't ram it down your throats, but you tell them. Five, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers. Watch this. He commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. That applies to us. That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. So see, you've got 100, you've got 150 years here. Easy. Same principle that they should put their confidence in God. Are they going to run into rough stuff, those kids that haven't been born yet? Oh, yeah. Stuff we probably can't even imagine. What's going to be like in this country down the road? What are they going to face? Well, they better be taught. 
for those who love them and have seen his faithfulness that they can put their confidence in the living God. That's our job. And what a privilege. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So let me say this. Say, I, I have a spiritual heritage from my dad. He got it from his dad. But see, my grandpa, he didn't get it from anywhere. He was the first one to come to know Christ. I've had guys say to me, man, Steve, I wish I had a spiritual legacy like you. Yeah, I'm very blessed. It's just the goodness of God. Man, I wish I had that. Well, guess what? Do you know Christ? Oh, I've just come to know the Lord. Guess what? You get to start one. You're going to be a new link in the family chain. You got that long, long deal. It's all darkness, darkness, darkness. Jesus has come into your life, and now there's going to be the light of the gospel. There's going to be forgiveness. There's going to be reconciliation. There's going to be truth. There's going to be love. There's going to be compassion. There's going to be all this stuff that only Jesus brings about, and you start following Jesus with the whole heart, and you're putting a new link in the generational chain as you follow him each day. And that's how you get the principle of spiritual compound interest. Years ago, Ron Blue, financial guy, I read this back in the 90s. He said, if you, uh, instead of going to Starbucks, you spent $2.74 at Starbucks, if you save it, put it in an account, he said at 12% interest. Boy, that's a laugh. <laughs> but 20 years ago, you could do it. $2.74 a day, just put it away for 40 years, just put it away. 40 years, you got a million bucks. Because of the miracle of compound interest. You've seen those guys, the insurance guys, they'll show you the tables. Most of us find out about compound interest too late. But if you can start early, it, you put it in, you put it in, it's just real dull, it's real slow. The years go by, it's just, mm -hmm, not much action, you know, mm -hmm, put you to sleep. And then about 19, 20, 21, all of a sudden, you sh sh it's Cape Canaveral, man. That sucker takes off like a rocket. It's compound interest. You ever met a family and they all seem to have it together and everything? Good marriage, good kids, everything just... In, but they don't know the Lord? Um, Ray Steadman wrote this. He said, I've been in homes where there is no testimony to God or recognition of him at all, and yet they have been orderly homes, moral homes, loving homes, a joy to be in, where the children were obviously well-adjusted and able to cope with life. Some people are ready to say, so then what difference does Christianity make? The answer is that if you investigate a home like that, you will find that just a generation or so back, there has been a significant Christian exposure somewhere in that family. In other words, secular homes of that character are living on the capital of faith which has been invested by a previous generation. They are spending the bank account of spiritual understanding that was set up by their recent ancestors. And in a sense, this is what our whole nation has been doing. We've been living on the spiritual bank account of our forefathers, but now the resources upon which we as a people have been drawing are gone. So how do you put away, spiritually, $2.74 a day? Let 
me ask you something. What's the difference between a family that, is, that has a father, but not a, but not a committed Christian father, just a father who's not following Christ, but he has strong Christian values. Uh, he has strong family values. What's the difference between a good American guy who has family values but doesn't know Christ and a man who loves Jesus Christ and is committed to Christ in his work? Is there a difference? Oh, yeah, there's a difference. There's a big-time difference. The family that Stedman just described, they got family values. But it came from someone before who was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual capital, guys, is the result of obedience and walking with Christ every day. Just each day, you get up and you follow the Lord. You just follow the Lord. You get your Bible, you read it, you go do your work, you do it, you just go to bed. And each day, you're just obeying. You just do something, you just follow Jesus today. And God has a way, because he is so rich in mercy, God has a way of taking that and not only blessing us, but blessing those who come after us. And you say, well, you know, Steve, I'm concerned because my kids are away or my kids are here or my kids are over here. And you, Sure. I think the most powerful force on the face of the earth is a Christian man on his knees with his Bible open before God asking for mercy. The gates of hell shall not prevail against that man. That's the most powerful force on the universe, in the universe. <laughs> you're, because the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the earth looking for those whose hearts are fully his that he may strongly support them. So you keep loving them, you keep, <laughs> you love them, pray for them. In your car, pray for them. You're at the gym, you're on that, whatever you're on, pray for them. Whenever they come into mind, just pray for them. You're investing $2.74 spiritually. Just pray for them. And you may not see it, and it may not happen until after you're gone from this earth. But you put them into the hands of the living God. And trust God to do the work that you can't do in the first place. Paul said to Agrippa, I would that whether in a long time or a short time, you would come to know him. You leave that to the Lord. I'll close with this. The highest and most valuable grade of bamboo in the world is grown in Malaysia. Um, but it takes great patience to cultivate it. This particular type of bamboo in the first year the farmer plants it, and then he waters it, he fertilizes it, takes care of the weeds. And at the end of that year, there's absolutely no growth. It's still under the surface. Second year, he continues to carefully water and fertilize and nurture. And at the end of the second year, there's absolutely no growth. A lot of guys have quit by now. Third year, waters, fertilizes, hot, humid conditions. Third year, absolutely no growth. Fourth year, now you got about 10% of the guys left. 
Same drill, same drill, same work, same water, same fertilizer. Into the fourth year, absolutely nothing to show for his labor. The fifth year, he again diligently waters and fertilizes. And that bamboo grows 90 feet in 30 days. That's what you call compound interest. You got a prodigal or one that's away from the Lord or struggling in their faith, don't lose heart. Keep following Christ. Keep loving them. And you keep praying. James 5.16, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Ask him to bring them all to heaven. I ask him for that. I ask him for every descendant. I, I, I just do. I just bring them all. Just bring them all in, Jesus. I'm asking for every one of them. Don't let one get away. Just bring them in. In your way, in your time, however you see fit, would you bring them in? I just, I pray that all the time. Why not? He's a savior. He's a savior. And he's a great savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Yeah, we're concerned what's going on around us. It's in the air that we breathe. But thank you, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the power of your word that's at work within us. We, we see all of our shortcomings and our, and our failures. We see them all the time. But Lord, as you are working in our lives and we're just simply trying to follow you, there is an integrity and there is a congruency that you're developing and that is being observed and you get all the glory for that. But we thank you that that work that you're doing within us has the power to counteract everything Satan is attempting to do in this world. Greater is he that is within you than he that is in the world. We thank you for that truth. We live on it. We count on it as men. In Jesus' name, amen.